Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting uh, John DeVilbus' recent article in Utah State uh, Magazine, um, it's a blue speck from space. Helps you find your place on Google Maps. Uh, it flashes like a beacon to millions of birds on migratory marathons. It's a sea in the sand that shimmers lavender in one glance and pale turquoise in another. A place you can go for an entire day without seeing a single soul, yet where two million people live within an hour's drive. It's a lake of paradoxes, said historian Dale Morgan. A liquid lies, said author Terry Tempest-Williams. The salty truth, however, is that the Great Salt Lake, the largest saline lake in the western hemisphere, is drying up. We're going to talk about the Great Salt Lake with Wayne Wurzbaugh, who is uh, Professor Emeritus of Watershed Sciences at uh, Utah State University. Professor Wurzbaugh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You spent... Decades studying the Great Salt Lake. Another yeah, Lake I've State. studied other systems as well, but one of the first systems I, I studied when I came here in, in 1983 was, was the Great Salt Lake, and I've been at it on and off ever since, and then recently it's been the major focus of my research. So this is, a, this is a, the biggest saline lake in the Western uh, Hemisphere. How unusual are these large saline lakes? Yeah, we think of them as very unusual uh, because we often go recreate at freshwater bodies. But uh, on surface area-wise for around the world, they are about 21% of the inland waters. Now, a lot of that's the Caspian Sea, a huge lake really in Central Asia. But there's a lot of large lakes. We have them up in Oregon, out in California. I worked at one in northern Argentina called Mar Chiquita, which rivals Great Salt Lake in size. And then particularly in, in Central Asia, the one people know a lot about or have heard of is the Aral Sea that's had problems similar to what the Great Salt Lake's experiencing. So there's a lot of these around, and so they're not that unusual. Um, I, I guess that maybe hurts our pride a little bit, but we but it, it is <laughs> it is a very unique, you know, we— um, sort of makes Utah in a way, right? And yeah, gives I mean, Salt Lake City its name, and you know it's uh, it's definitely a point of pride. Yeah, exactly, and it you know be, particularly because we're located, the population centers kind of surround Great Salt Lake. It's very dominant in how how we think about the state, and as you say, the name of the capital and so forth. Is that unusual? To have, to have a, a bunch of population around a lake like it is here. Yeah, that, that is fairly unusual. Um, a, a lot these saline lakes are in arid regions usually, and you often don't have big population centers. Uh, Great Salt Lake with our mountains that are water catchers, freshwater catchers, give us a possibility to, to live here and have a, a freshwater supply. But a lot of uh, saline lakes don't have that much fresh water around, so... Uh, yeah, we're somewhat unusual ex- circumstance. So the, the the lake apparently is shrinking. Uh, maybe give us some context. How this is a remnant of Lake Bonneville. So yeah, so we, eons ago know, is very big. Yeah, we talk about climate change, and so if we look at long time scales, we have uh, Lake Bonneville fifteen thousand years ago at in the Little Ice Age. And uh, it covered a good share of northern Utah, uh, where we're sitting for this interview right now, and all the major campuses 
uh, were on the shore, you know, the shoreline of Lake Bonneville. So we had a huge system, and and the lake, on the long term, has has been shrinking uh, in a way since then. Uh, but since the pioneers arrived in the 1850s and started developing water resources, diverting it primarily for agriculture, but all the uses we put it to industry, household uses, and all that, all that water or a lot of that water that gets diverted uh, evaporates and hence never reaches the Great Salt Lake. And not that long ago, people would say, uh, well, any water that reaches the Great Salt Lake is wasted water because once it becomes salty, we can't use it for agriculture or we can't drink it anymore. But the thinking on that has changed a lot in recent decades since I've been here uh, and people recognizing the value of the Great Salt Lake for uh, birds and uh, uh, brine shrimp industry, other uses. And and now particularly we're worried about health effects if we expose a lot of that lake bed and, and get more dust storms. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about uh, quantities. So how in recent years, how much has the lake shrunk? Yeah, we the Division of Wild, uh, Water Resources, uh, particularly a person named Craig Miller, uh, did some modeling and estimated, you know, if, if we have these many acres of alfalfa and we have these many acres of lawn and we know the evaporation rates for that, how much water is being lost. And, and so uh, we estimate that about oh, 40% of the river inflow is now being diverted. Now, that's been increasing over the decades and since the pioneers arrived. And that uh, 40% loss has caused the lake to shrink uh, about close to 50%, both in terms of volume and and lake area. So we've had a a very large impact on on the system already. Uh, We're not in the situation of the Aral Sea in Central Asia where... 90% of it's been dried up, or Lake Urmea, a lake in Iran, similarly about 90% has been dried up. Uh, We're not not there yet, but we're kind of headed that direction as we talk about more and more water development. So 50%, that's still, that's, that's, um, I mean, shocking to me. I didn't know it was 50%. Um, You made a reference to the Aral Sea a couple of times. Tell me about that. I've I've seen the pictures before and after. It's it's just shocking. Yeah. So the Aral Sea was huge, and and maybe I don't know the actual value of 20, 30 times the size of the Great Salt Lake. So a really huge system. Uh, and in the fifties and sixties, the Soviet Union started development of the water, the rivers flowing into the lake for uh, agriculture irrigation projects. Uh, and uh, they pretty much dried up almost all of the lake. Uh, the, the, the shape of the lake basin, the morphometry we say, it was such that they were able to build a, a dam and constrict and save about 5 or 10% of the Aral Sea. Uh, but the rest is, has pretty much dried up. In wet years, you have you know, some flooding in there, and you get some water in the old lake bed. But as a consequence of all that drying, there's been massive dust storms, uh, health problems for people, you know, hundreds of miles away as these dust storms transport uh, things very far. As we go along, we'll talk about that, and there are worries about that here in Utah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, you, you see the photographs, you know, old ships 
uh, right stranded just just sitting there on a on a dry lake bed now yeah the Earl Sea was what we call hyposaline. It's not as salty as the Great Salt Lake. And uh, it had a low enough salinity that it had uh, a thriving fishery uh, for, you know, with ocean-going type ships out there uh, harvesting the fish. Uh, and as the lake dried up, uh, that those fisheries were lost and the remnants are those ships on the shoreline that, that are some of the classic photographs that you see in National Geographics and, yeah. and other places, a very graphic reminder of, you know, of what uh, water development did to that lake. So, uh, I mean, I think in, in today's modern age, we do have a general sense of, you know, with engineering and uh, humans' effect on on nature can be very great, but sometimes I think we push it aside. We, we think, well, Mother Nature is so powerful. But the RLC, you, you, you look at that, it's a huge, a vast lake. And within a short amount of time, we collectively, <laughs> uh, it was the Soviets, but we, uh, we dried that thing up. Yeah, we certainly did. And, and the Soviets actually recognized that before they instituted the, the projects. And they did get a lot of value out of developing that water. There's cotton, there's all sorts of valuable crops for, for people in the region. What was, well, people realized that they would lose the fisheries, except in this little remnant lake that they recovered. So they, they recognized those things. What they didn't recognize were some of the environmental costs and the health costs from, uh, from the dust that uh, generated from the lake bed. So tell me about that. We could revisit that a little bit later in the program as well. Um, there, there are consequences from drying up the lake. Yeah, certainly. These, uh, the lake beds, when they're exposed, uh, depending on the characteristics of, you know, of the soils that are exposed or how much salt is covering the, that lake bed, uh, when the wind kicks up, uh, it can uh, generate a, a lot of dust. Uh, and uh, and transport at hundreds or at some cases even thousands of miles. So this has been documented probably best for the Aral and another lake in Southern California, much smaller system, one that fits conveniently in the size of the Bear River Bay uh, of, of Great Salt Lake, uh, a lake system called Owens Lake, and that was dried up in the 40s. Uh, by uh, water development to take water to uh, Los Angeles. So the water that came off the east side of the Sierra Nevada mountains was, was developed, transported in canals, uh, and as a consequence, Owen Lake uh, dry, dried up. Um, the uh, population around there is tiny, uh, 20,000, 30,000 people compared to the two and a half, three million people we have around the Great Salt Lake. But these people are around Owens Lake, uh, the community of Bishop is the largest small community there, uh, have reportedly have much higher incidence of asthma. And uh, they've taken the case to court and and won, and and, uh, the city of Los Angeles is going to be spending over the next 20 years about three billion dollars to uh, mitigate the, the, those dust effects so and which includes putting more water back in on the lake bed not enough to bring the lake back uh, but to wet it so that the dust dust isn't generated 
Um, c- could, um, of course, uh, Wilson Lake, that water is diverted for the population elsewhere and um, probably continue to be diverted. Uh, s- something like the Aral Sea, could could this, those sources of water be routed into the lake again? Could, could such a lake be restored? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, water flows downhill, and if you stop using it, uh, it's going to be, be, be flowing back into the lakes. In a lot of cases, a lot of efforts are being made to improve the efficiency of, of water use for agriculture and other uses, uh, and, and uh, that certainly can help. Uh, so uh, flood irrigation, for example, uh, is very costly in terms of water loss. So uh, there, people are turning to different types of spray, spray irrigation. Or in case of uh, some countries, Israel, a prominent example, uh, drip irrigation. And, you know, we, we hear about that locally in that people talk about changing your, your lawns to uh, xeriscaping them and then putting in drip irrigation that just uses a fraction of the water. But that's most important if, if you're talking about trying to recover a lake uh, uh, in the agricultural sector because that's where most of the water loss occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this was a this was a conscious choice, right? The, the Soviets wanted to develop a cotton industry and, and other industries, and they knew they were going to dry up the lake. Uh, correct. Uh, yeah. So, but it's a it's an ongoing continuous choice as well, right? Because it, uh, we, you could either or, but but you would then, what, devastate these industries that are depending on the on the water if you were to fill up the lake again? Uh, well, that depends. I mean, if you, you, largely, you would talk about radical shifts in the type of agriculture. So some crops need a lot of, a lot of water uh, and aren't really amenable to things like uh, drip irrigation. So you in most cases, you're likely talking about changing what crops you actually are growing uh, and, uh, and then putting in drip irrigation, and you can save probably 90% of the water. I'm, I'm not an agriculture irrigation expert. I don't know the exact values, but you can have huge savings. Uh, but it, it's a big change in the culture. The other thing that's driving a lot of the problems that we can say, oh, we can you know, put water back in the lake, and in some cases, you know, we can do that without huge effects. But the under one of the underlying driving problems is increase in world population and, and the need for more food. And uh, when you're growing more food, you need that you need water for that. So, in the long long term, we really need to get a, co- a control on on our population on the planet. Uh, and that's not an easy task either. In a long term, you really need a long term perspective. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Great Salt Lake. Um, it's the largest saline lake in the Western Hemisphere, right? And um, it shapes so much of what Utah is. But I'm going to ask a question when we come back. You know, it's a devil's advocate question, but a real question as well. What good is the lake? What is it? <laughs> what does it do? Um, we've already mentioned birds and and uh, and shrimp. It was interesting. I was reading. Um, I can't remember who it was at Utah State University had done a survey, uh, asked people about the lake, you know, the lake versus the water that flows into it. And um, a majority said, yeah, we need to preserve the lake. But a minority 
uh, said, no, let's use up that water. You know, that was a sentiment you expressed, uh, or not, not you yourself, but you've heard expressed. Right. That's certainly the case. I mean, we get a lot of value out, out of that water that uh, goes into agriculture. In a lot of cases, the values, you could debate it. Uh, do, do we need uh, an acre of lawn around some of the homes I see here in Cache Valley that needs irrigation all, uh, constantly? Uh, how, how much value do we really get for that lawn? And in, in the case of agriculture, most of the water uh, that would have flown to the Great Salt Lake uh, uh, grows alfalfa, which uh, is then fed to, to cattle and uh, other animals. And so uh, that's not a very efficient production uh, method. And so we could be looking at other crops that, uh, and, and, again, changing the culture and changing our uses of the water. We'll talk more about the Great Salt Lake uh, following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and American Festival Chorus and Orchestra and the women of the USU Choirs celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Utah Women's Rights to Vote and the 100th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment. Friday, September 27th at 7.30 p.m., part of USU's Year of the Woman. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Clear Recovery of Cass Valley for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download our UPR app so you can listen anywhere. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake on the program today. Uh, the Great Salt Lake is, not to put too fine a point on it, drying up. Uh, we have Wayne Wurtzbaugh uh, with us. He's Professor Emeritus of Watershed Sciences at uh, Utah State University. has studied um, saline lakes, including uh, the Great Salt Lake. Now, is that, Professor Wurtzbaugh, is, is that hyperbole? Is <laughs> are we running to the hills? Is our hair on fire here? Should we should we under should we state that in a less hyperbolic way, or is the Great Salt Lake drying up? Well, uh, as we said earlier in the program, uh, you know, we've lost about uh, close to 50% of the volume in the area. Uh, now, that varies a lot from year to year. I, I just checked uh, before coming here, and the, the lake's going to come up about three and a half feet, or maybe even four feet this year, because we had a very large snowpack and a lot of runoff. And so, all these fluctuations uh, make it actually hard uh, to determine, uh, you know, what's happening to the lake. And before we did this study that we published a few years ago, you know, people would say, oh, the lake goes up and down, and it's wet years. And I was around, and maybe some of the listeners were around when the lake was flooding and threatened the airport and was went over Interstate 80 at times when the wind blew that way. So these big fluctuations do make it hard to 
determine things. But uh, this analysis that was uh, done by the Division of Water Resources, and then we published with a number of authors from here, here at Utah State, uh, estimated that the lake is, because of water development, has dropped about 11, 11 feet on average. We still have these big ups and downs, but uh, 11 feet is a lot. And the, the lake depth is, when it's relatively full, about 35 feet, something like that, sometimes 40 feet. So 11 feet is a big, big chunk of it. Mm. And and why we're concerned about it, uh, if we were to stop here, we would still have a pretty functional lake. We have brine shrimp. We have industries that rely on it. We have a lot of recreation around it. Uh, but there, as you know, there's a lot of talk about continually developing uh, the Bear River for, for water resources. And the Bear River is the biggest source of water for the lake. And uh, uh, we talk about uh, developing 220,000 acre feet of water for um, uh, Utah. And that's a pretty big chunk of water. And that might drop the lake another a foot and a half, two feet, something like that. Uh, but uh, Idaho and Wyoming also have rights, if you will, from something called the Bear River Compact uh, to some of that water. And so if uh, uh, Idaho in particular were to develop their water, we're talking to dropping the lake another uh, uh, two or three feet. And so we keep uh, little by little bits and pieces each little development project doesn't have that much effect but it's kind of uh, death by a thousand cuts and then mm -hmm. as we look to the future and also have to worry some about climate change and, and the predictions are that less water will be coming into the lake uh, as as the climate warms um, yeah we we do have a big long-term uh, problem on our hands and and you know the legislature uh dedicated, uh, you know, I forget the value, of $30, 40000000 million for water development a couple of years ago. That's both for St. George and Colorado River water, but also Bear River uh, water development. Uh, people are, are looking at, at developing that for largely for increasing, uh, you know, population around the Wasatch Front. Uh, if you if you look at a map of who owns you know all this the land surrounding all this water Bear River and 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 such, it, it's a patchwork. You know you have private, you have federal, you have state. Um, just an illustration, a visual illustration. If you would look at that, of the, that everybody is going to have to work together. It's going to be not a simple solution. Yeah, it's, it's not a simple solution. People certainly want that water or water law. Uh, in the West is such that once you're appropriated water, uh, you have the right to use it. And in fact, if you don't use it, you can lose that, that right. So our laws really need to be uh, changed and allow people, for example, uh, I've been to conference lately and people were talking about water banking. And, and that is allowing people essentially to sell their water to, to somebody else for a different use, and that use could be for the Great Salt Lake. Um, and so, uh, but right now our laws are, are kind of restricting what, what we can do even if we, if we do want to save water for the lake. And there might be a need to change the laws uh, regarding water rights because I think right now 
if you you if you over time allow your water to you have rights to to flow downstream, uh, you could lose that. I believe right. That that's correct, and so people tend to use it whether you know and do do some extra irrigation whether they really need it or not, uh, and so. Uh, it's a big, big problem, and those laws are entrenched. But they're beginning to be changed. Uh, Idaho, for example, has uh, instituted this water water banking uh, system, and so you can get pretty good transfer and put the water to to the best use. So, if if you know, as a society, we deem the best use is watering lawns, I'm not sure I agree with that, but a lot of people uh, might want it. Uh, we could transfer those water rights from from uh, uh, a rancher who has alfalfa to uh, somebody, uh, a city who wants to use that water for uh, developing uh, their city. Parenthetically, I think we need to have a compact with our neighbors. That's where the pressure comes, right? It's the it's the peer pressure. <laughs> My lawn gets a little less green. I'm going to get looked down uh, down the nose of uh, by the neighbor, right? Yeah, and in fact, which city? I forgot. It was in the news recently. I probably heard it on NPR. In fact, that as, as some cities require a certain amount of lawn, uh, you know, like I think it was sixty percent of the landscaping had to be lawn, and this was to oh, stop things like people piling automobiles in their right. front yards and so forth. <laughs> but still, the law is in, is in effect and is being changed, fortunately. But it requires, you know, water use that maybe people don't even want, but they're required to do. And then, as you say, you have, uh, you know, this competition to make my, my lawn look better than your lawn. And mm-hmm. as I came into school this morning and, and left, there were even people in my neighborhood uh, irrigating their lawns. And uh, we're on a... Uh, canal system water uh and it's not even a watering day but they were they were still <laughs> keeping things green yeah uh so the, uh, i want to get to this question what's what's the lake good for what's uh, why the lake right uh reduced by 50 percent um you know you you look at those photos of the rlc and i i just get sick to my stomach that's my reaction i think it'd be the reaction of a lot of people on the other hand if if you're benefiting from one of those industries, um, you know, and, and in that survey, there were some people who said, let's use it all up. And so I want to get to that. And maybe a, a place to get in is um, in some of these bays, Farmington Bay and, and other bays, I think the the water level has dropped even further, right? And so maybe a precursor to what the whole lake might look like. Yeah, it isn't so much that the water has dropped further but these are real shallow bays so, okay uh that so you drop the lake uh, the overall lake a little bit and as i said we're, we've lost about close to 50 percent of it but uh bear river bay uh in the in the summer about 90 percent of it is dried out and uh, uh farmington bay is similar and that's just because they're so shallow so they're the first first areas to to be exposed uh, and so, and those are important areas, uh, for, particularly for birds, because they're they essentially sort of estuaries. That's where uh, the rivers come in. Uh, Bear River comes into Bear River Bay, and uh, Jordan River, and some creeks come into Farmington Bay. So they're not as salty, and they and they have gradients in, in salt content. 
so there's more diversity in the types of uh, in uh, organisms that can grow there. So uh, they're extremely important for birds, and so a lot of our bird use uh, occurs in those two bays. And that, and uh, as you say, uh, a lot of that's being dried up and being impacted disproportionately uh, compared to the rest of the lake. I was reading that um, islands are very important and and uh, lake level dropping in some areas and they're now land bridges to islands and that's you might think in fact I did when I was reading the article um, so what but <laughs> there's important so what yeah it's important because the, 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 a lot of the birds use those islands for nesting because predators can't get out there the coyotes the foxes and so forth uh, and so they're good safe havens for for reproducing your young. And the, the classic case uh, is uh, Gunnison Island up in the north arm of the Great Salt Lake, uh, which is uh, one of the more important pelican nesting areas in, in the western U.S. And there's uh, several thousand pelicans that nest out there. Um, and a couple of years ago, when the lake reached its, its lowest level ever, uh, uh, predators could get out, walk out on the land bridge, and get to the island. Now it was a long distance, maybe 10, 15 miles they would have to walk. So not not many predators got out there, and so the pelican population still still thriving. And the, and the lake has come up a bit since then as well. So uh, there's no longer a land bridge. But if we continue to drop drop it, there will be a a permanent, if you will, land bridge, and we could lose that that nesting area for the pelicans. And and there's other birds, the gulls, uh, and so forth that have used other areas for nesting, and they've been exposed to. This is a very important stopping point for I don't know hundreds, uh, maybe more than that, of species of birds, right? And and hundreds of thousands of of, of birds come through. Yeah, uh, the estimate is something like a couple million birds a year use the Great Salt Lake. Uh, the lake is, well, very productive in that when you have water coming into a lake, that water brings in nutrients, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, these things that come naturally out of our environment but are augmented by fertilization, that sort of thing. But the, those nutrients make the lake very productive, so it grows a lot of invertebrate organisms. Brine shrimp is the prominent example, but gnats and these things. So there's a lot of bird food in there, and particularly around the wetlands, around the margins of the lake. And so it's a real magnet for, for birds coming through. So you have waterfowl uh, in, in high numbers, uh, shorebirds, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of shorebirds that come through and use the, the, the habitat and the high productivity to, to feed and, and fatten up. Uh, one of our birds, uh, eared grebe, comes through, and I, in a uh, couple months it's here uh, on migrating it. Uh, it, put, it puts on about 50% more weight because it, it feeds on brine shrimp and mm -hmm. other things. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so it's, they're extremely important that way. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, we've dried up wetlands uh, throughout the country and particularly in the west. And so the remaining wetlands that we have around the margin of places like the Great Salt Lake become all that much more important because others have been dried up.
If you just joined us, we're talking with Wayne Wordspa, Professor Emeritus, uh, Utah State University Watershed Sciences, and we're talking about the Great Salt Lake, which uh, is, well, it's shrinking. And so we're talking about uh, the problems that causes and possible uh, solutions. So this is a very important uh, migratory. You said the, the eared grebe uh, puts on how, mu- how much? About 50%. 50%, which is important to continue the journey, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so some of the things that might be annoying to you and me if we go visit, like the flies, the gnats, that's important to the birds. Right. Uh, the uh, one that when you, if you go out in Antelope Island or other areas around the lake in the summer, July and August, there'll, there'll be hundreds of thousands of brine flies that are Around, particularly right around the shoreline. Fortunately, they're not a biting fly, uh, but if you uh, have a phobia to insects, they can be pretty annoying because they do land on you and tickle and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, those adult flies that bother the humans are important for a lot of birds that feed on the adults. And then you have other birds uh, uh, that uh, dive down and feed on the larvae of these insects that are uh, growing on the bottom of the lake. Uh, so that's one important source. In the estuaries that we mentioned earlier, Farmington Bay and, and Bear River Bay, uh, you have different species of gnats. Uh, and you ha- in some cases, you have some biting flies that also emerge. So mm. if you go to Antelope Island at the wrong time of the year <laughs> or early in the spring, you can wind up with... Uh, uh, getting bitten quite a bit, so you have to do time time your visits carefully there. So I was I was going to ask you. So early spring, that's the wrong time of year if you don't want if you if you don't want you know if you yeah, want gnats go then. But uh, yeah. So now again, there's a lot of these gnats that don't bite, and you can look at them. They, I I find them fascinating. Some of the the larger gnats, uh, a group called chironomids, uh, they. Uh, have these mating swarms that are, oh, 10, 15 feet high. And as you, uh, may, some of the listeners may have uh, seen them, and when they drive out the causeway to Antelope Island, there'll be dozens or hundreds of these swarms of gnats. And those are not, not biting gnats, but uh, other, other, other times of the year. And particularly about now, really, is a, a time where you can get a fair number of bites. And in some cases, there's mosquitoes as well. Antelope Island is wonderful. I'd recommend that to anybody. You've in this article I was reading, you you took your uh, some students up to the the ridge, I guess highest point in the Antelope Island. That must be afford a, a wonderful vantage point. Yeah, uh, it's a great place, and I've often taken visitors up there. I had a group from Iran a few years ago uh, that have a this Lake Ormea that's that's drying up there, and they they came out here to gained some knowledge from us that have worked on the lake. And in the case you mentioned, we took some of our, our graduate students uh, when they first arrived, our new cohort of graduate students, out to the lake. And uh, we didn't get up to the highest highest point, uh, uh, which is a great, wonderful hike if you have the time, but it's a two- or three-hour hike. Uh, but you can uh, go up to Buffalo Point uh, and in a 15-, 20-minute walk get a really nice vantage point looking uh, both to the west and seeing all of Gilbert Bay. And if you look hard or have binoculars, you can see up across the railway causeway to Gunnison, Gunnison Bay. Or you turn to the east and you can see Farmington Bay and then the Wasatch Front and the mountains there. It's it's really beautiful spot, uh, and I highly recommend uh, your listeners to 
go visit there and, and do that very sh- short hike to get the great vantage point. Now, some visitors come from the outside and wonder why in the wide world did I <laughs> did I come? Some place you have that rotten egg smell. You got the flies and gnats. Um, the lake is very salty. Uh, where, where does that smell come from, by the way? Yeah, so that smell is often referred to as lake stink. Um, and um, it's really not the main lake that's probably causing that problem. So uh, we have in Farmington Bay to a certain extent and in Gilbert Bay something that's called the deep brine layer. And it's it's a consequence of building causeways and a, kind of a peculiar hydrology uh, that puts a stagnant layer of water down on the bottom of, of the either Farmington Bay or, or Gilbert Bay. And the uh, detrital material, the fecal material from brine shrimp or the algae that are in the lake sediment and fall into that layer and decompose. And when they decompose, the bacteria uh, use up all the oxygen. And then you get it's called reducing conditions, uh, chemical term, and it allows the sulfate in the lake to be turned into hydrogen sulfide. And that hydrogen sulfide has the uh, rotten egg smell. Mm-hmm. And so if we go out and put one of our sampling apparatuses down into that layer, bring that water up into the boat to, you know, put it in bottles for chemical measurements or whatever, uh, people want to jump out of the boat almost because mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. pretty strong. <laughs> the The layer in Gilbert Bay is uh, down about oh, 20 feet, something like that. And so it's hard for any of that hydrogen sulfide, which can form a gas, uh, to, to escape. Uh, but in Farmington Bay, uh, the layer's just down about uh, four or five feet. And so when you get a windstorm, uh, it, it, there's enough turbulence, enough energy to bring some of that water to the surface and uh, re- release that smell. And so it has big effects, particularly on, you know, people downwind uh, in, in Salt Lake City in that area. Mm. We published uh, a, a, a piece in the Friends of Great Salt Lake newsletter a number of years ago. Uh, the Great Salt Lake doesn't stink, but Farmington Bay does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Another problem with Farmington Bay is being in close proximity to Davis County and, and Salt Lake. About 50% of the water going into Farmington Bay is treated uh, sewage water, you know, waste, mm-hmm. treated mm-hmm. wastewater. And that has really high nutrients in it, nitrogen and phosphorus that I mentioned earlier. And so you get a, a huge amount of production of algae and, in fact, uh, and also cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria, maybe some of your listeners, have, has been in the news but uh, in regard to uh, Utah Lake that's uh, yeah. have increasing blooms of these things and they they produce cyanotoxins that uh, are can be quite toxic to humans so that's a big concern the cyanotoxins in Farmington Bay are about 30 40 times higher than in Utah Lake so uh, uh, but we don't have as much recreation in Farmington Bay as in in Utah Lake so it's somewhat of a different situation so these, these blooms, uh, you, you can, I mean, they look kind of pretty, you know, <laughs> but don't, you know, don't swim into that. Um, and that's gets after break, let's talk about the brine shrimp. Because the brine shrimp counteract that, right? Uh, to a certain degree, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And an interesting animal in and of itself. And it's become a big industry. 
for it is for, in Utah. Very big industry. Uh, let's talk about that and and uh, and more and uh, maybe health effects for those areas that of the lake that um, have dried out or will dry out. Uh, more with Wayne Wurtzbaugh on the Great Salt Lake following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible by our members and the Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake. It's the largest saline lake in the Western Hemisphere. We've got it right here in Utah to enjoy. And we have an expert with us, Wayne Wurtzbaugh. He is Professor Emeritus of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. We're talking about this because it's interesting to talk about and also because the Great Salt Lake is slowly drying up. Um, and so how do you counteract that? That's one of the questions. Uh, so it occurs to me that uh, I led us into a, a kind of a discussion of at least the implications being why in the wide world would you go and recreate on the <laughs> near the lake, the, the gnats, the flies, the rotten egg smell. Let's begin this segment with why would you want to? And, you know, this is a devil's advocate question. I, I love Antelope Island and love being there, but to a, there are a lot of attractions. Yeah, so one of the biggest attractions that we alluded to earlier is the birds. So that you have a, a lot in the bird-watching community that really enjoy going out around uh, Great Salt Lake and the adjoining wetlands and viewing birds. And so that's that's one of the... Uh, big values to the lake. You also have uh, waterfowl hunters that utilize, utilize the lake and the adjoining wetlands in, in the fall for, for hunting. Um, it's it's unique to a certain extent because we don't have that many saline lakes around. And so uh, going out and wading in the Great Salt Lake and looking at the brine shrimp in the water, and which are you know these invertebrates, and they're about a quarter of an inch long, uh, we have invertebrates in that place kind of similar roles in Bear Lake, for example, but they're so small they're really kind of hard to see with the naked eye. So you have that, some u- unique characteristics there. Uh, so uh, that recreational component is, is, is quite valuable. Other values of the lake, uh, well, backing up, uh, about 10 years ago a group estimated – the economic value of the Great Great Salt Lake, and, uh, and it came out to be about $1.3 billion. The biggest share of that is for mineral extraction. So we have Magnesium Corporation of America, Compass Minerals, uh, that uh, makes largely fertilizers. Other uh, people make titanium that they extract from the, the salts in the lake. So that's the uh, biggest component of that $1.3 billion. 
but uh, recreation was uh, not, uh, I think, the next largest component. And then one you mentioned was the uh, uh, brine shrimp. So these, these brine shrimp uh, aren't harvested directly as the adults, uh, although they used to be for fish food for aquaria. Uh, but the big industry now, and it's about a $60 million a year industry, is to uh, harvest the cysts or the resting eggs of these uh, brine shrimp. And these are little or tiny little things less than a millimeter kind of fit uh, on a pinhead. Uh, a lot of those cysts float on, on the surface of the lake. And so in the fall, uh, we have uh, dozens and dozens of boats that go out. Uh, they use spotter planes to uh, spot and find the uh, concentrations of these cysts. And then they go out and, and harvest those uh, and uh, take them back, dry them out, put them in cans. And they're, they're sold uh, worldwide. And the Great Salt Lake is the largest producer worldwide to, to the aquaculture industry. And the biggest component of that aquaculture industry are prawns. And so... I, I certainly know that prawns have got a lot more prominent in the market in the last decades and uh, cheaper. And so a lot of those will come from Indonesia or South America. And the baby prawns, when uh, they're starting out, need a high-energy, high-protein source of food. So these cysts that can sit on the shelves for years, um, if you put them in a salinity about like seawater, and in a, a couple of days, uh, they hatch out into something called a nopuli, a tiny little invertebrate, uh, about a millimeter long. And the, the prawns or other fin fish uh, will uh, uh, feed on those and, and grow quickly and get to a size uh, where they can make it in, in the ponds. I was in Indonesia uh, a couple of years ago just for... Uh, a vacation, but when we would fly in and out of different um, coastal cities, you could see uh, thousands and thousands of acres of, of, of ponds uh, where they're growing these these prawns. So that's a that's a very major I- industry there. Uh, now, are these actual related to shrimp? They're very small size, but is this an action? Is this a uh, taxonomically, it's it's uh, well fairly closely related. If you look at the broad spectrum of mm-hmm. you know yeah. human, humans down to bacteria, the brine shrimp and the shrimp that you would have in the oceans are fairly closely related. Mm-hmm. Uh, are crustaceans uh, they reproduce by producing these eggs. Uh, one interesting aspect of these eggs, I mentioned they can stay on the shelves for years in a dried state. Uh, we took a sediment core out of the bottom of the lake and sliced it up and f- found out the dates. And we took the eggs that had been deposited in those those cores and uh, and hatched them out. And we hatched uh, brine shrimp eggs that were over 200 years old uh, in, in the lab. So they're wow. extremely resistant. Uh, and, <laughs> actually, uh, actually hatched. They hatched. Yeah. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and so that's the reason why this is, uh, this is amazing fish food. So that's the, the reason for this yeah, $60 million industry. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I want to, before we, we have about uh, five minutes left, um, I want to get back to at the end talking about, um, you know, solutions to reducing the, the diversion of flows into, into the lake. Um, is, is there, 
Is there a bullet point? Is is there something maybe I haven't asked you that's that would be very interesting to people about the about the lake? Uh, well, it's beautiful place. Uh, her, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, you can go to certain places and and you won't see any any other people. And I didn't really enjoy going out on the lake and sampling. And you get not very far out from shore and yeah you feel a little bit like you're on a different planet mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. remote and a lot of people like that i've had some graduate students that go out there and go oh no this this isn't the place <laughs> for me so maybe it's not for everybody but it, it is beautiful and antelope island is one of the easiest access points to to go view it another interesting place is the spiral jetty a, mm-hmm. a land art yeah. project um, that was uh, built decades ago uh, and you go out uh, through, uh, to the north arm of the lake, and and it's uh, there's some hills nearby, and you can get up and uh, look down on the spiral jetty uh, that juts out into the lake. Right now, that uh, the spiral jetty is uh, on dry land because we the lake is down mm, so interesting, far. Interesting, interesting. Uh, uh, other times, the water comes up around it. And so you can view it from the hills above, and then you can walk out on it uh, uh, unless in real high water years it could be submerged. So that's a real interesting uh, place to to visit. And if you haven't been out there, I highly recommend you you Mm -hmm. go visit there. Maybe just take a a minute on this. Um, We've made reference to it early in the program, but you you might think, okay, so, you know, so the lake, at least part of it dries up and you have exposed – lake bed that can be a potential problem right dust storms with maybe not so good stuff in that in that dust yeah that's that's being studied right now and uh so fortunately at least to date the the lake bed the huge amount of lake bed that's exposed doesn't produce as much dust as places like uh, owens lake Uh, you have different soil characteristics you have salt crusts uh, but if we dry things up, that salts may wash down into the bottom of the uh, the basin in the remaining water, exposing more soils, and so you, perhaps we'll get more increasing dust. So we need to look at that. Uh, Farmington Bay right now doesn't have salt crust, and as we said earlier, a lot of the of that bay has been dried up because it's so shallow. So a lot of our dust production comes out of the exposed sediments in Farmington Bay. The other concern, uh, as you alluded to, is that it's not just dust, but in Farmington Bay we have these cyanotoxins from all the uh, cyanobacteria that have died on the shoreline there. Um, Other parts of the lake, uh, well, in Farmington Bay as well, we have uh, quite a bit of heavy metals. There's a uh, a lot of mercury in the sediments and copper and zinc and lead and some of these things. One of my colleagues, Janice Brini, in the Watershed Sciences Department, is studying that right now, just how, how, how much cyanotoxin, how much uh, heavy metals like lead and zinc and mercury are in that dust. Uh, and people are worried about that, but uh, we really haven't – we don't have the data yet to determine whether we, we're going to have particularly bad dust or just 
regular bad dust. Mm-hmm. And Wasatch Front is particularly vulnerable because uh, the area around the lake, because a lot of people live there, exactly. unlike some other lakes. Uh, we just have about a minute left, and so we'll we'll leave maybe for another program the the surrounding water issues. But let me just uh, ask this question: thirty seconds on this. Are you hopeful that that uh, the lake level drop can be arrested and? Uh, uh, somewhat hopeful. Uh, when I started working on the lake 30 years ago, people didn't care much about it. But now it's in the news a lot more. A lot more people are aware of the problem and aware that our water use and potentially our growing water use will cause the lake to shrink even more. One thing, I, in closing, I, I did an analysis or just pulled up some data and looked at water use in some other arid countries, Spain and Portugal and Greece and uh, I think I had seven of them. And water use per person, per capita in Utah, was two and a half times water use in those other countries. And Israel was the most conservative water user, and our water use here in U- Utah is about seven times higher per person than what people use in Israel. So we don't need so much water. Uh, we can get by with a lot less and still have a f- highly functional society. So I think if people recognize that and and want to want to save the lake, uh, I think we can do it. On the other hand, the Division of Water Resources is moving ahead with the Bear River water development. Likewise, uh, uh, Idaho water developers are looking at that water. So what will happen in the long term, I don't know. But I'm hopeful because people are paying more attention to the issue now. Well, stay tuned. More to come on this, I'm sure. We've been talking with Wayne Wurtzbaugh, Professor Emeritus uh, of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. been talking about the Great Salt Lake. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.